If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to the epistle of 1 Peter, where we will continue in our study of this short epistle as Peter writes to those whom he calls his little children. He also calls them uh, aliens or foreigners in this land. And if you don't feel like an alien or foreigner in the land in which we are dwelling right now, then just wait a while because uh, you, you should start uh, beginning to feel that way as we look at, at the world that has become so very different even in the most recent uh, weeks and months. So, as we begin our time together, uh, first of all, let me say that uh, I appreciate Paula and, and her friend Rich being here this morning. This is Tiffany's Aunt Paula. And when I say it that way, you may be thinking, why? Well, I think I might have heard some stories. Of, uh, is that? Yep, that's, that's, that's the Aunt Paula in question. So um, we're, we're delighted they will be able to join us this morning and bring a, a new aspect to our worship. Uh, Tiffany, in her bout with the, the cold or whatever she's had, has had, had a really time, hard time hearing a lot of you might know and so we were just going to tell everybody we got this lady to come in and, and sign for her because she clearly can't hear. We're becoming fairly adept at uh, kind of an ASL of our own making at home because um, she pretends not to be able to hear me. But anyway, um, before we begin this morning, could we just uh, have a quick word of prayer together? I would appreciate that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your glory and the superlative nature of all that you are the wonder of your holiness, the unassailable Father, nature of your character. We trust who you are, Father, when we don't trust in the things we see around us. And I pray, Father, you would keep us humble before you. Father, I pray that as we open your word together, you would give me concision of speech, clarity of mind. And Father, you would give me conviction and passion for the word that is yours to us. We thank you for it. Bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. We've come now to the very end, or we will hopefully get to the very end of chapter uh, 2 this morning when we first started this short journey through the, this little epistle. I thought we would be done in about six weeks, and I, I, we've been going much longer than that now. We're up to chapter 2, so we're, we're, we're making headway. Um, we have talked, in fact, for the past two weeks, we spent our time together talking about this idea that he begins in chapter 2, verse 13, when he says, submit yourselves to the Lord's, for the Lord's sake to every human institution and so forth. And we talked about what that meant for you and I in the context of a world where the government and those in authority seem to be on a bent to where they are rewarding evil and punishing good instead of exactly what Peter says they're supposed to be doing, which is rewarding good and punishing evil. So how do we respond to that in light of this command that we submit ourselves as unto the Lord or for the Lord's sake to this government. We talked about at length what that might look like for you and I. And I want to add a couple of things to that discussion that we did not talk about on the way that we're going to get to um, something that I hope will help us out. First of all, I want to notice uh, two things that we did not really stop and pause on long enough when we went through this passage. And the first of them is in verse 16. Because if you recall, we talked about the fact Peter's telling them that you are occupied, in a sense, by a foreign power that most of you not only dislike, but most of you would disdain. 
There was no love lost between Jewish people from which the early church came and the Romans. They, for the most part, hated the Romans. They wanted to throw off the yoke of, of Roman oppression and set up their own kingdom as they felt like they had every right to do. And so, they, they obviously, they don't like the Romans. They resent Roman authority. And many of them begin to actively work towards rebellion against Rome. And Peter says, look, you should not be that way as believers. You are, not, you are not citizens of this world in the first place. You should be a citizen of a larger kingdom. And you have a higher calling. So submit yourself to the government authorities that God has set before you. And we talked about the, the difficulty that might have posed to them. But then he says something very important. They're to do that so that they can silence the accusations made by the ignorant people in the Roman government who used to say, by the way, that these Christians are the ones causing all the trouble. They, they don't say that kind of stuff anymore. Or, or do they? They've got a bad reputation from some of the early efforts by the Jewish people to resist the Roman occupation. And so they've sort of attached that to these Christians. In fact, as I mentioned, it was Nero who blamed the Christians for the great fire. And everybody knew that was a lie because about three days after the fire, he trotted out plans for the new Neuropolis, um, which... You could not draw up in three days. but So anyway, he, he knew, people knew they were a scapegoat, but this idea is still attached that these Christians, they're always up to something. They meet in homes. They do weird things. They worship a dead guy. You know, they have all these, these love festivals. It's just strange. And, and they're causing trouble. And Peter says, look, you be the best citizens that Rome has ever seen. You be exemplary in your conduct. You render unto Rome the taxes due to Rome. And then you live godly. You seek the benefit of your own country and your own countrymen. You be the best that you can be so that you can silence all these ignorant accusations. And the fact of the matter is, if we as Christians live as we're called to live, even in our day and time, we would be the best citizens this, the country has. He said, you be different. So he calls them to live in subjection. Then he says in verse 16, act as free men. You think, wait a minute, no, I, th I thought he just said submit. Act as free men. Live that way. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as a bond slave of God. You know, in that day and time, in that context, what he's saying is this. The Jewish people, and even uh, those in the church, the early church, believed that they were really not governed by Rome. Although they may be here, and they may think they're in charge, but we answer to Yahweh and Yahweh only, and we have been given by Him a right to govern ourselves. And so they may say we're citizens of Rome, but we're free. Like the child once said to a parent, I may be sitting down on the inside, but I'm standing up on, or I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. And what they're saying is, we might be occupied, but we are free. And Peter says, you know what, that's fine. Live that way. Live as free men, but don't use that freedom to cover up your unrighteousness. That's really what he's talking about in Peter's context. He's still on this political discussion of how they're supposed to live to the government. Now, in our day and time, we have to understand that our forefathers, 
some 200 plus years ago now, actually achieved what the early Jewish people would have loved to achieve. They wanted nothing more than to throw off Roman oppression and govern themselves. Our forefathers ac actually accomplished it. And we threw off, right, English government and govern ourselves. And in the context of where we are today, we not only have the right, but the responsibility to push back when government becomes stronger than we, the people, think it ought to be. That's the system which we have inherited. It's a very different system. And yet, Peter says, do not use your freedom as a pretense for unrighteousness. And that hits you and I squarely where we live right now. How have we treated the freedom that has been handed to us? And what we see happening in the context of where we are right now, what we see happening over and over and over again is people using freedom and claiming freedom and what they really want and they demand is a stamp of approval for every perversion known to man. And we're going to march on Washington to make sure that we have the right and we maintain the right, quote-unquote, that we can kill children before they're born. We're going to march on Washington and demand that they recognize a same-sex union despite what the Bible says, despite what the church has always said. And we're using our freedom to demand an accomplice. Because that's what we want, really. We want somebody to stand up and stand with me and say, what I'm doing is right. That's how we've used our freedom. I'll tell you why. We're just going to demand that we be free to do whatever we want to do. And we want endorsements. We not only want endorsements, applause. You need to applaud me for my bravery in standing up for my freedom. To murder a child in my womb. And you know what the church has done? We have decided that, well, you know, if the government says it's okay, then it must be okay. And not only that, but when we take our issue out of the context of Scripture and we drag it to Washington, then we tell the church, here, here church, you are no longer allowed to talk about this subject because now it's a political issue. Now, it's never been a political issue. It's always been a church issue. It's always been a biblical issue. It's always been an issue about morality and right and life and goodness. But no more. Now, it's a political issue, and you can't talk about it because just keep your church to your church, and let's keep the state to the state, and the state says we're right. And so many churches are just saying, well, okay, I, I guess that's right. Let's just, start, let's just start interpreting things differently and let's just adapt what we do and what we think and what we say because we have to be in step with the government. What an abuse of freedom. And that's exactly the kind of thing Peter's talking about. Don't use your freedom to try to get somebody else to applaud your sin. Live as free people. But don't use it as an excuse to just live any way you want to because you and I are still governed by the same king, right? We're still governed by the same monarch we've had since we gave our life to our king, Jesus, who is still the Christ. So, don't use your freedom for license to do whatever you want. Even your freedom in Christ. Say, well, you know, Paul says I'm free. Don't live under the law and do whatever I want. That's an abuse of your freedom. 
What you're free to do, Christian, is serve the Lord and live unto Him in obedience for what brings Him joy, for what brings Him glory, not your own. So, he says, don't use your freedom for license to sin. And the irony of all that's happening around us right now is that so many of those demanding freedom to propagate ideas and concepts and lifestyles and ideologies are going to destroy the very freedom that gave them the ability to propagate that kind of nonsense. Amen. And this is what they will say. Well, we're free to do that. Of course we're free to do that. How do you think you got free to do that? You just cut the limb off behind you. Paul said, or Peter says, look, you be good citizens. Second thing he says, do not use your vocation for an opportunity to sin. Look what he says, because we're going to pick up now where he says in verse 18, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience towards God a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, for what credit is there if when you sin you're harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Use your freedom for righteousness. Use your vocational calling in life for righteousness and for bringing God glory. And he says, respect, be subject to your masters. And we talked about the fact this is not slavery, early United States history, slavery kind of thing that, that Peter's talking about. He's talking about an indenturedness to a, a place where you would essentially work for your a loan you had gotten or, or perhaps they actually pay you. So this is more analogous for us about, you know, when you go to work, you ought to be the best employee that employer has ever had. You ought to be the best employee that employer's ever had. You ought to have the best attitude. You ought to have the best work ethic. You ought to have the best integrity. You ought to be unquestionable in your trustworthiness. And they ought to say, you know what, I wish I had a whole workforce of Christians. Because they do a great job and they give me an honest day's work for what we agreed on. That's not like a lot of people I know. And, and you say, well, that, that's good, but it's hard when, when my, my employer is unreasonable. Well, Peter anticipated, you might think so. And you as a Christian ought to be not only submissive and the best employee you can be when you're... When you're uh, employer is unreasonable, but especially when they're unreasonable. Because it is in that context when you make the most impact. When people will look at you, co-workers will look at you and say, how can you have such a good attitude? How can you say anything nice about Mr. So-and-so, our boss? Have you not met the man? Do you not know he's unreasonable? Do you not know he's grumpy and crabby? And do you not know he runs us down? Do you not know he, he tries to pay us as little as they can and they ought to pay us more and then they don't give us the days off they should give us and when they do have to come in on those days they don't pay us time and a half? How can you say anything positive about these people? Because they're your masters. 
They give you a job. Peter says, look, even when they're unreasonable, maybe especially if they're unreasonable, you be submissive, you be respectful, and you still work just as hard for that person as you would if they were being just very congenial. Why? Because you are not working for that person. You are a bond slave of the living God. Your job, and I've said this before somewhere in our study of this epistle, your job and your own job is one thing in life as a believer, and that is to please your maker. It is to bring God glory. You are a bondservant of God. Now, underneath that, he may have you working directly, humanly speaking, under the authority of another. And it may not always be a Christian. But you still serve that person as though you're serving God. I can't even tell you the number of things that just boggled my mind when I was practicing uh, labor law. People will call and want to know if it was fair that they had gotten terminated for fill in the blank. Let's see. Can they fire me because I take two hour naps at lunch? Yes, they can. Okay. Can they fire me for taking home company trucks and cars when I'm not supposed to? Yes, they can. Okay. Can they fire me because I sit in the stairwell and instead of sweeping it, I read my Bible? Isn't that a violation of my religious rights? No, it's not. And yes, they can. I mean, I, I, you just have to tell people sometimes. I, I've had people call me all kinds of weird things that have happened to them at work. And, and sometimes it is, you're like, I, I understand why you're angry. I understand why it was unfair. But here's the law. It, it, there is no law against being a jerk. And if your employer is a jerk, they can fire you really because, you know, unless it's one of the big five, they can fire you for it. They can fire you because they don't like the color of your socks. They could, I mean, be foolish, but they could. So unless it's because of, you know, race, gender, background, political status, preferences, things like that, there, there's a list. And if it's not on that list, they can fire you for it. So just mark it down. But I, I was just amazed at some of those people who were Christian people. Like I said, the one lady said she was proud of the fact that I'd, I'd rather just read my Bible all day. So she, she hid out in the stairway and read her Bible. Well, she got fired for it. Well, of course you did. Because they are not paying you to read your Bible. You ought to be better than that. We ought to be better than that. We ought to be exemplary. Especially when they're unreasonable. You'd be the one person on Christmas Day that you have to work that has a good attitude and joy. It'll make a difference in how your coworkers see you. And whether you know it or not, it'll make a difference to how your employer sees you. You ever seen that show, The Hidden Boss or whatever, where the, the, the boss goes incognito or the owner of the company goes incognito and, and mingles with the employees? And it's always amazing. People say just the most hateful things. You think that that employer or that business owner leaves there thinking, I'm going to give that guy a raise. He's obviously unhappy, and if I give him a raise, he'll be happier. No! You know who they recognize in that show? The people that have a great attitude, even when things are not good. That ought to be you. That ought to be me. That's what he says for us to do. And we talked about the last two weeks, what that might look like to live in sub sub subjection to our government. 
We've added those two things now that don't use your freedom for a cover-up for sin and be the best worker you can be. Now, having done all that, I do not want to be guilty of being um, sort of a sideline coach that, that yells all kinds of encouragement but with absolutely no instruction. Sydney had a soccer coach that used to do that. Stand over on the side of the line saying, score! Or do better, literally. Do better! How? Your job as coach is to instruct me as to how to do better, not just encourage me to do better. So I don't want to leave you hanging with, here's what you need to do, now go figure out how to do it. So we're going to talk now about the means, <coughs> excuse me, the means, motive, and opportunity. I think I heard that somewhere. I watch a lot of that crime channel, you know. I don't even know what it, it's called crime channel. I just call it the murder channel. And typically a spouse thing. I don't know what's going on with that, but um, my wife just migrates to that, that channel a lot. But, you know, we're talking about the means, the motive, and the opportunity. Well, how, the means, this is the how. You know what you're supposed to do. I hope at least in the last three, two and a half weeks now, you have some idea of how we're supposed to be living. But how do you do that? Because it is difficult, and it's difficult for a lot of different reasons. I was telling Brett this morning that I think this passage has kept me awake more hours than almost any passage that I've covered in Scripture in a long time. Because it just has such biting application. And it is so contrary and foreign to what we have been taught and raised to be and to do, especially in the Western world. Right? The idea here is, you know, you, we, we have what we, uh, is called rugged individualism. You stand up for yourself. You take care of yourself. You don't let anybody take advantage of you. And you look out for number, which is you or me. No, not anymore. Number one is Christ. That's your job. But anyway, it's so contrary to everything we're taught growing up. It's so contrary to our human nature. And sometimes that's, no, you, that's how you know this is God's Word, because it is so contrary to anything a human would write. This makes no sense to, to our American kind of mindset. I'm free. And that means so much to us that when we talk about things like submitting to an authority... It's just foreign to us, and we struggle with it. So, how do we do it? You know, we're, we're, we're told not to suffer injustice patiently. I mean, what, what if you're doing good, and you suffer for it, and you endure it patiently? Well, I, when Hayden was, I don't know, first grade, kindergarten, we went to our teacher conferences, and uh, I think it was first grade. But anyway, his teacher was just heartbroken. Hayden was being bullied on the playground by people significantly smaller than him. I mean, he was always a big kid and a strong kid. But he was such a good-natured kid. All he wanted to do was be friends. But he has been bullied on the playground. His teacher sat there and wept, talking about he will not... Stand up for himself. He will not fight back. He will not strike back. 
He will not defend him. I mean, these other kids are picking on him and hitting him, and he does nothing. And it broke the teacher's heart. He said, I just want to see him hit somebody. Well, Mom and I did too. So when we found that out, we started, you know, talking to him. And, you know, and, and you, you, you look up, you, f you find the episode of uh, Mayberry, right? Where Opie, Opie won't fight back, you know? And then, and then Andy gives him some sage wisdom about he flew into a bully like a windmill or a tornado pop. And so Opie comes home with a black eye, right? You got a black eye there. Oh, I went at him like a windmill or a tornado, Paul. And his dad's, well, you got a black eye. He said, I know, Paul, ain't she a beaut? That's the American way. Fight back. I'm struggling to find that anywhere in this passage. What if you do what's right and you suffer for it? And you fight back. This finds favor with God. No. What if you do what's right... And you suffer for it. And you have a bad attitude and you complain and tell everybody about all your woes. That finds favor with God. But what if you do what's right and you suffer for it and you patiently endure it? This finds favor with God. How do you do that? How do you do that? Remember three things. First of all, purpose. First of all, his purpose. What is his purpose? Verse 16 says, look, this is God's will for you. I think that's actually verse 15. This is God's will for you. Wait a minute. What's God's will for us? That you endure being treated badly. You suffer for it. This is God's will for you. You know, people always say, God has a, a beautiful plan for your life. You know, we tell people that all the time. You know, God has a plan and purpose for your life. Yes, He does, and here's what it is. You are going to suffer for doing what is right, and God's plan and purpose for your life is for you to gently, patiently, gracefully endure it. That's God's plan. All right, are we on board? Oh, doesn't sell nearly as well as, you know... God has great success stories for you to enjoy all through your life. But suffer. It says, but remember your purpose. Your purpose is to find favor with God. Why? He's your monarch. He's your king. He's your sovereign. If Jesus says this is what makes him happy, this is what brings him satisfaction, this finds favor with my sovereign, if this finds favor with my king, then that's what I'm going to do. And if my king says, look, when you're mistreated for doing what I say, when you're mistreated for doing right, patiently, gracefully, endure it. If my king says patiently, gracefully, endure it, then you know what I need to do? Patiently gracefully endure it. The word endure means to bear up and move on. Now you can suffer for, what's be, what, for doing what is right and then you bear up and keep doing what's right anyway. That's your purpose. Here's God's plan. I love this verse 21. Now we're going to get to 
Uh, this is how we do it. Remember his plan for us, for you have been called for this purpose. What purpose? Everything he said above. And this really, in, in this verse 21, it is a, it's, it's a because, here's why, because, here's why, because, here's why. Now, right now, uh, Everett's at that stage where um, everything is why. And it does not matter what the answer is that you give him. That brings another question of why. Why is this black? He, uh, we were looking at something. It was a piece of plastic. Something. Why is this black? I don't know. They made it that way. Why? Well, somebody decided it looked better black. Why? Just It's, it's never-ending. It's mind-boggling. Everything in, is answerable by why. And so this is what Peter says. The word for, look at verse 21. The word, the word for it is not in this context the, the kind of for in English we would use as in a, a preposition this is belonging to. In other words, this isn't corollary to what I'm saying. It, it really is the preposition which means because. Okay? So he says, everything he said about submitting to authority, being a good uh, to your masters, because you have been called for this purpose. What a calling. What a calling. I told you that Peter got the good stuff in the front part of his letter, right? About the, the, the hope we have in Christ, the resurrection we have in Christ, the joy we have in Christ, the power we have in Christ, and the freedom and the grace, all that stuff. Then he talks about suffering and says, that's part of your calling too, by the way. For you're called, because you're called to this purpose. That's why you do it, because that's part of your calling. Why? Because Christ also suffer for you. Why? Leaving you an example for you to follow in his footsteps. We like the passage where Jesus says, because the disciples are marveling at his miracles and all the wondrous things he's done. And you've heard the verse because we say it, we hear it said, because it's one thing we like to claim, and that is this, I tell you, you shall do these things and greater things following me. Oh, we like that part. But you know what Peter says? Here's this example. Not of doing miracles, not of healing the masses, not of amassing wealth, not of succeeding in life. Here's the example of Christ we follow to give you an example to follow in His footsteps. What footsteps are those? He suffered for you. There's your example. Now follow His footsteps. He just suffered for you. Here's your motive. How do you do it? Just understand your purpose. Okay? understand the plan is for you to be involved in this kind of doing what is right even if it means suffering that's the plan that's the purpose what's your motive I mean if, if you're gonna do it based on just focusing on God we're gonna focus on on our purpose for for serving him and it's his calling and we're gonna put him above ourselves, and that's the way we're gonna why should we do that well, Jesus becomes sort of not only your, your uh, example, he's also helpful 
in helping us to actually carry that out. Here's what Peter said, look, he suffered. That he would be an example that you follow in his footsteps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while he, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. You know what Peter's problem was? We notice by the age of 12, there's no Joseph. Okay. Historically, um, at least according to, to legend or whatever, Joseph died, and if you read certain works, uh, Stranger Than Fiction, called the Arantia Book, they say Joseph died when Jesus was 12 in a scaffolding accident because Joseph, like Jesus, was a carpenter. So anyway, Joseph's gone. We know that by the time that Jesus enters his public ministry. There's no Joseph. And here, because he had no father figure in his life and Mary didn't teach him how to fight and Mary didn't teach him how to stand up for himself that's Jesus problem really I mean he said really one arguably two words in Greek three in English I am he and an entire army of Romans fell down can't defend himself. Really? With the power of his words, he could defend himself. And he says, I could have called angels to my rescue. It would only take one. But let's bring a few just for, you know, the impact. He could have defended himself, but he didn't. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. You know what reviled means? It means to be verbally abused. Now some of you know what that's like. Just verbally berated, mocked, ridiculed, lied about. You know what he did in return? Patiently, quietly, committed himself to the Father. Because he knew the Father knows the truth. Now, I don't know if you've ever, in your marriage, because, you know, maybe mine's very, very different. Um, uh, maybe in your marriage you've never had such a thing. But once in a while, Tiffany and I will have what I like to call marital discussions that enter into a realm of discussion uh, sometimes by the world call, called argument, which I just see that as a form of, you know, kind of a debate, which is always a good thing, at least in my book, but not in hers always. Anyway, we take it to another level, okay, and argument uh, sort of gets off topic. You ever have those kind of discussions? Well, like now we started arguing about this thing right here. Very, very, we're going down this road. This is the only road we really need to go down, and I'm, I'm kind of fastidious about this. I mean, if we're going to talk about this, let's talk about that. But there are exit ramps. And now we can talk about not only this thing, but how we talk. Oh, yeah. We're not talking about this thing anymore. We're not just this thing. We're going to talk about how you talk about things. And then we're not only going to talk about how you talk about things, but we're going to talk about the way you always talk about everything and how that makes me feel and what you probably mean by that. And before long, you're not even talking about this thing anymore. You're way over here. And it has entered the realm of argument. And, and that takes you into a, a little subset of an argument called name-calling. Right? You start saying, well, you always do this. Well, the other person certainly is justified in doing what they always do. Or else they wouldn't always do it if you didn't always do the thing that caused them to do that. 
Because you always do that. Well, of course I do. Well, you always think you're right. Well, everybody does. Because by definition, if you didn't think you're right, you'd be admitting you're wrong, and then you would no longer think that. But if you think you're right, because that's your true opinion. Anyway, everybody thinks they're always right. So please don't argue with somebody and say, you always think you're right. Of course they do, and so do you. But anyway, I, I, it's just me. Just me, I'm sure. I've been in those situations where I think, you know, I'm staying on this road. I'm not getting off the off-ramp with you. Okay? So it does not matter what you say. I'm not going to respond in a negative. I'm just, I'm just not going to, I'm not going to go there. I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to respond in a, in a good way. You know, what I'm, I'm not going to retaliate. I'm just not going to do it. You say that to yourself until the other person starts actually saying stuff. Stuff that you cannot believe is coming out of their mouth. And as hard as you don't want to, when you're being reviled, I will not revile back, you know, following Christ's example, I'm not going to say anything. Before you know it, it's just too much. What do you do when people revile you? <laughs> it, it, it just cracks me up sometimes, but people get so angry when other people say untrue bad things about them. What we have to do is we have to try to find everybody they told that to and not only set the record straight, but tell them what a horrible person the person is that said that bad thing about me for saying bad things about me. I mean, this is reviling, and then I'm going to counter-revile, and then you can revile some more, and somehow we, we, uh, that's what we engage in. Jesus had no part of it. No part of it. You want to say that I'm, that, uh, I'm blaspheming because I say I'm God? You know, what he, you know what he just said to that accusation? Not a thing. You know why? He didn't have to. Because he was God. Not long from that moment, he's going to prove it in a big way. But he didn't, he didn't respond. He didn't, how, do you, how do you do that? Follow Jesus? It's just not fair. Here, here's the thing we got to understand about that idea. You do not want fairness. I promise you. You do not want fairness because what is not fair is that the Son of God who had no sin in Him nor any deceit was found in His mouth while He was being reviled, He didn't revile in return, while suffering. He uttered no threats but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously and He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. That's not fair. That is absolutely unfair that Jesus dies because of your sin. So next time you're thinking, well, what this person said to me is unfair. Really? You want fairness. Most of us want this. We want grace for everyone else and judgment and fairness. Or we want grace for ourselves and judgment and fairness for everybody else. 
I don't want to be accountable, but I want you to be accountable, particularly when those sins had to do with me. Now, if you want to go sin and do some other things, God will forgive you. Don't worry about it. You know, you live by grace. You know, they tell you some terrible thing they did. And, and that's, you know, brother, God loves you. Let's talk about restoration. And, you know, 1 John 1, 9 says that we sin. He's faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What if they're going around talking trash about you? Well, that's a different kind of thing. You know, they were just talking about different kinds of sins that don't have anything to do with me. But when they're connected to me, then all of a sudden I want fairness. You do not want fair. And this is what astounds me. There's no sin in him. No wrong. No flaw. Nothing wanting. And if you can stand in judgment of people who have wronged you, and you can stand at the cross and look at the sinless, perfect God hanging on the cross and He says to the Father, forgive them. Forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Forgive them, Father. That If you can stand and look at Christ and then look at yourself and still be indignant towards your brother or sister, then you either do not understand Jesus or you don't understand your own darkness or possibly neither one. But you cannot look at the cross and the perfect Son of God unfairly, unjustly, defying anything that He comes close to justness, dying for you, and still feel injured and aggravated because things aren't great for you right now. Because you know what we deserve? The very thing from which we were healed, which is what? Death. That's the way Paul says it, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and you were before Christ by nature, as is the rest of the world, children of wrath. But by His stripes. And the word really is raised. You have been raised from the dead. You have been healed of death. That's not fair. That is grace. And that's the gospel. Jesus is our example. And this is what I don't understand about people who, for whatever reason, just check out on church. And I'm not talking about people who go to a different church. I'm not talking about people who... Somebody gets mad because, you know, somebody at a church, and, and you, you say things, so, hey, would you like to come to Easter services? And they say, well, I don't go to church. And uh, he said, I'll tell you why sometime. And I said, well, I don't know what the story is, but I bet it involved people. You know what he said? Yes, it does. And I just want to say, what do you find lacking in the Savior? What do you find unwholesome or unworthy in the Christ? What part of Him is wanting? Is He not magnificent enough for you? Is He not sinless enough for you? Can you not see Him dying on the cross? And yet because the people around you down at the church, you might bump into some people that don't treat you just the way you ought to be treated. Yet does that diminish the Christ whom you've come to worship? Or do you just come to be patted on the back, made to feel good? Well, I give up on... You give up on church because people aren't perfect? Oh my goodness, you have to give up on a lot of stuff. I don't understand that. We come to worship Christ. And hopefully we have love and unity and we do in our church. and It's wonderful. But you know... Not everybody here is always happy with me. 
And they say, yeah, I know, Brother William, because it's going on 40 minutes now, and so uh, I know what you mean. Well, here, here's the thing you need to understand. I'm, I'm not always happy with everybody here. I love you. But you, you I, I love fellowshipping with you. I do. I adore coming to see the saints. And, and like I said, I pray for you kind of as you sit, which is, you know, Butch and Linda are throwing me a little bit today. I won't, I'll keep asking myself, were they there on Sunday? Because they, they moved on me. You can't do that as a Baptist. Yeah, what are you doing? Anyway, but I don't come just for that. We're worshiping the Christ. To extol, and we talked about this several weeks ago. Peter says, what's the purpose of the church? To talk of the excellencies of the church? No. To talk of the excellencies of your week? No. Let's talk about the exploits of everything. No. To speak of the excellencies of Christ. That's why we're here. And he'll be just as excellent next week. And the week after that. And though we come every week and tell of his excellencies, we will never run out of things to say. He is beyond superlative. He is beyond description. He is beyond magnificent. And He is eternal. And so, for eternity, you know what you do? Extol the excellencies of Christ. Now, if that's not good enough for you, play golf on Sundays. I don't want to tell you. We worship Christ. I mean, I've had people so mad at me, as our pastor used to say, you know, they wouldn't pour water in my ear if my brain was on fire. They're so mad at me. Quit coming to church. Why? Well, William did this. Or didn't do that. Did God change? You think this is all about me. You, you're sorely mistaken. I have misled you or somebody has. This is not about a pastor. This is not about a preacher. This is not about hearing somebody coming to hear somebody perform a speech or some kind of monologue. This is about worshiping God and He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And His plan and purpose for us very often is to continue serving, to continue seeking His glory even when we suffer. We have forgotten in the Western modern church that it has always been, it is now, and it will probably continue to be God's purpose and plan to allow His people to suffer, to spread the gospel. You know one of the fastest growing churches in the world is right now? China. Where they have forced work camps. I mean, you think people want to sit around and glue tennis shoes all together all day for you? You think they want to make iPhones? So you can get the next, 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 next version of the iPhone. You think they want to spend, you know, 12, 15 hours a day doing that? No, they, they're made to. That's what they're living under. And yet many of those people are meeting in secret to worship and praise God for the wonders of Christ. Wow. So, you know, if his church and the gospel spreads faster through suffering than it does through blessing. Are you on board with that? We may have to find out. We may have to find out. <laughs> Warren thinks it's time for us to close. So thank you for your patience. And uh, you have certainly patiently and graciously endured.
So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. I thank you that it challenges us, it shapes us, it molds us, it makes us what you call us to be. Father, where we have failed you, convict us. Search our hearts and our minds, and I pray, Father, anything and part of us not fully yielded to you, we would just give it to you this morning. Father, we want to worship you and adore you, and bring you glory as our King. We ask these things in the power and the name of Jesus the Christ, the name at which every knee will bow and every tongue confess to the glory of the Father that He is the Christ. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.